University of California Television presents this podcast of language politics and immigration policies from the Center for Comparative Immigration Studies at the University of California, San Diego. This talk by sociologist April Linton was recorded at UC San Diego in October 2006. For more information about this and other UCTV programs, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation. Good evening and welcome to this latest edition in the series of research seminars hosted by the Center for Comparative Immigration Studies at UCSD. Our topic for today is the politics of language in the United States and how it shapes language policy as well as policy debates over immigration. Picture this. One of our states has been receiving a large number of immigrants from a particular country. The immigrant population becomes so large in that state that many of the public schools introduce bilingual education. As time goes on, bilingual education becomes controversial and a public backlash develops against immigrants, leading one disgruntled state legislator to declare, if these people are Americans, let them speak our language. California in the late 1990s? Nope. Nebraska in the 1910s. And the immigrants in question were Germans, not Mexicans. The point of this story is simply that backlashes against perceived, perceived threats to the dominance of the English language are a recurrent phenomenon in the United States. Today, linguistic diversity is, again, a lightning rod for anti-immigration sentiment. We know from national public opinion surveys that low tolerance for linguistic diversity is a significant predictor of anti-immigration attitudes. And apparently it's also a good predictor of how politicians seeking cover from the storm of public anxiety over immigration will behave. Last May, the U.S. Senate found it politically necessary to include in the Comprehensive Immigration Reform Bill that the Senate passed a provision establishing English as the national language of the United States. Without this stout defense of the English language, proponents argued, the current wave of immigrants from Mexico and other Spanish-speaking countries would undermine the country's core culture and sow the seeds of disunity. Unless we forget, just eight years ago, the California electorate overwhelmingly approved Proposition 227 which prohibited most bilingual education programs in the public schools as they operated at that time. This despite a large and steadily growing body of evidence from social science research demonstrating that the, that the transition to English dominance among today's immigrants is happening more rapidly than among the European origin immigrants who arrived in the early part of the 20th century. A just-published article by Frank Bean and two other sociologists, which is based on large surveys of immigrant children in Los Angeles and San Diego, 
shows that Spanish and other native languages spoken by recent immigrants are likely to succumb to English dominance by the third generation. In fact, they find that the average life expectancy of Spanish among Mexicans in Southern California is just 1.96 generations. They conclude, English has never been seriously threatened as the dominant language of the United States. And it is not threatened today, not even in Southern California. What is endangered instead is the survival of non-English languages that immigrants bring with them to the United States. These 21st century immigrants and their offspring don't need the US Congress to tell them that English is the national language. They universally recognize that English competence is essential to their economic success in the United States and to their children's success. Nevertheless, native-born Americans tend to focus on the limited English competence of the first generation of immigrants, ignoring what their children are doing. Our speaker today has grappled creatively with these contentious issues in her research on how immigrants are being treated in the U.S. public schools and how state and municipal governments have addressed the issue of linguistic diversity. April Linton is an assistant professor of sociology at UCSD and a faculty research associate of our center. She came to us from the University of Washington where she earned her PhD in sociology, specializing in the sociology of immigration. Welcome, April. Thank you, Wayne. Um, I'd like to thank you all for being here. And also extend um, special thanks to Wayne for inviting me to grapple with this topic a bit. Um, my topic is language politics and policy in the United States, implications for the immigration debate. Um, this is, talk is based on a working paper, and I will welcome all of your comments later. Right now, I'd like to thank people who have contributed to this process, um, Susan Brown, Charlie Hirschman, Tomas Jimenez, who's here, and Dinesh Sahoni. Just uh, to give you an idea where I'm going today, uh, first I'm going to briefly discuss what language policy is, and then give you a historical overview of U.S. language politics. Um, language policy and politics in the public schools, and finally, these national language and official language bills that are in Congress and how they relate to the uh, overall immigration debate. Language policies are established via legislation, court decisions, executive action, or other means. They may determine how languages are used in public, abet the cultivation of particular language skills needed to meet national priorities, and affirm and protect the rights of individuals or groups to learn, use, and maintain languages. A language policy might deal with the government's own use of language as well, for instance, by facilitating clear communication, guaranteeing due process, fostering public participation um, in politics, and providing access to services. Now, here in the United States, we've never had an official language policy at the federal level. There's no federal agency that's charged with coordinating decisions about language use or language resources. But um, it's impossible for the US or for any government to be totally neutral towards language because 
um, we have to make choices about which languages or, lang uh, or language to communicate in. These choices, as Wayne mentioned in his introduction, are going to influence the value of the linguistic capital of various groups in the population, especially whose, uh, immigrants whose language is not the primary language of the host country. The same is true of institutional contexts for work and for school. In the U.S., the dominant language of government, industry, education, and popular culture is English. And to some extent, this has made it a very important, if not the most important, element in the construction of national identity, um, both as a communicative instrument shared by members of the nation and also as a boundary marker affirming their distinction from others. This joke might be a little bit um, overstated, particularly um, among the group in the room, but historically and now, the United States is a graveyard for foreign language. Well, how did we get that way? Bilingualism was very common in the 18th century in the United States and still relatively common in the 19th. But that was a time when a belief that American English both reflected and constituted the democratic and rational nature of the country began to emerge. For some influential thinkers, this meant more than just establishing a common language so that everybody could communicate. English came to be seen as a crucial unifying element, uniquely suited to define the nation and its citizens. Now, I have to mention that linguistic nationalism was not invented in the United States. Early 19th century German romantics were perhaps the first linguistic nationalists. Uh, their language was the true means of civilized communication, and other languages were dead or dying. Now, that might seem like a very extreme point of view, but it certainly illustrates the power of language to exclude or to include. If you'd wandered into German-speaking territory in, say, 1820, you would probably stop using your native language just as soon as you could get by in German, and you certainly wouldn't teach your language to your children. So reflective of linguistic nationalism in the United States, and also undoubtedly in reaction to all-time high levels of immigration, um, in 1906, an English requirement for naturalization was introduced, and Congress appointed the Dillingham Commission to, um, to study immigration and to make recommendations about um, immigration policy. Well, in 1911, the Commission, using pseudoscientific evidence, um, concluded that the new immigration, which was from predominantly from Southern and Eastern Europe, um, consisted mostly of inferior peoples who were physically, mentally, and linguistically different, and thus would not adopt to fundamental American ideas. Now, fortunately, the Dillingham Commission did not uh, result in any language laws, but it did result in immigration quotas that heavily favored Northern and Western Europeans. Meanwhile, it's noteworthy that New Mexico's statehood, which was granted in 1912, was delayed until the, migra the migration of English-speaking people who have been citizens of other states does its modifying work with the Mexican element. Um, 
Um, again, as Wayne mentioned, prior to World War I, it was common for schools in some areas of the United States to teach children in German as well as in English. A few policies that emerged during or shortly after the war. In Iowa and South Dakota, there were laws that said English was the only language that could be used in public places or on the telephone. In Nebraska, targeting German, no teaching of any non-English language until ninth grade. And Illinois wanted to protect its citizens from the danger of British English by saying that American is the state's official language. But, of course, promoters of American didn't really have anything to worry about. Uh, restrictive legislation passed in the 20s plus the Depression pretty much stopped immigration anyway. And what that did was encourage linguistic assimilation among people who were already in the U.S., usually leading to English monolingualism by the third generation. <coughs> the notion that this pattern is one that immigrants should follow became very powerfully entrenched. Now, I'm going to fast forward to the beginning of the next wave of immigration to the United States, the one that we're still experiencing. The 1960s was a time of um, much change in the country. Um, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act provided a new basis for minority groups to politically and culturally articulate their identities. Um, this was a potential window of opportunity for languages other than English to flourish alongside English. In particular, the position of Spanish in American life became part of the civil rights agenda because the obligation to exclusively use English in the public arena disadvantaged American citizens who grew up in Spanish-speaking environments. Um, Puerto Ricans in New York are a good example, as well as people of Mexican origins in some parts of the Southwest. So the Voting Rights Act of 1965 did establish citizens' rights to ballots in non-English languages. A new wave of immigration began, as I mentioned, and um, bilingual education was introduced in some public schools. I'm going to get back to the schools in a moment. Um, here I want to, to emphasize that just as in earlier times, this new immigration brought a new backlash and a new discussion about the status of English in the United States. Fast forwarding a little more. Um, in the 1980s, 1983, we saw an English-only movement, uh, officially known as the Official English Movement. Um, U.S. English is a foundation and a lobbying group. Um, its goals are to make English the official language of the United States, to oppose bilingual education, and to oppose Puerto Rican statehood. Um, First, and also, um, this group first proposed a, uh, an, official excuse me, an official English law to Congress in 1981. This map comes from the organization U.S. English. The blue states are states that have passed official English laws, and the red states are those that have not. Um, laws between 1981 and 2000, laws were passed in 23 states, including here in California in 1986. Um, four states have older laws on the books, including a 1811 Louisiana statute. 
So who's voting for these laws? Well, it's not that it's it's definitely not a partisan thing. Supporters range from liberals, who just see English as an important common bond, to nativists who view unwant, um, English speakers as unwanted aliens. The movement's success seems to be largely due to its framing of an official English in terms of patriotism rather than in terms of intolerance. A political scientist, John Frenrice and Raymond Tatlovich, um, found that the backing coalesced around the attitude that speaking English is related to being a good American. Majority support for official English laws was connected with attitudes that are clearly related to broader issues of national identity, which doesn't really neatly coincide with existing dimensions of political conflict. Now, in terms of the effect these laws have had, not very much. Who knew we had an official English law in California? Okay, one person. <laughs> yeah. um, while these laws, some of these laws prohibit, uh, they make it difficult for people to demand services from the state in non-English languages, they don't hinder service providers of the, for the state or municipalities within the state from doing so, um, if that's what they need to do in order to efficiently do their jobs. Um, recently, Tomas Jimenez and I, along with our research assistant Joyce Louie, conducted a phone survey in which we contacted the representatives of um, about a hundred municipalities and wanted to know if they offer premium pay for Spanish-English bilingualism. We found that about a third of them do. And that is um, just as likely to be the case in cities in California and Florida, say, where we have official English laws, as in places like Arizona and Texas, where no such laws exist. Um, it's also interesting that official English laws don't seem to influence people's linguistic choices. Research about the contexts that shape United States-born Latino adults' maintenance of Spanish alongside English um, shows no relationship between official English legislation and whether people are bilingual or English monolingual. And that was the case even when I just looked at the official English laws that were passed by referendum. Still no effect. So while all the official English stuff was simmering, another movement emerged called English Plus. Um, the goal of English Plus is to see that all citizens of the U.S. Uh, have the opportunity to become fluent in English and in another language. For non-native English speakers, this would mean requiring proficiency in English and maintaining proficiency in their native language. And for native English speakers, it meant a viable opportunity to become proficient in other languages. Proponents of English Plus view linguistic diversity, as well as other kinds of diversity, as a national strength that provides the United States with a unique reservoir of understanding and talent. Unfortunately, English Plus was not as far-reaching as official English. Um, the states that have passed English Plus resolutions are New Mexico, Oregon, Rhode Island, and Washington. And in 2005, Representative Jose Serrano introduced an English Plus resolution in Congress. I should note that even more so than official English laws, these are statements of values. They don't have any money attached to them or any specific courses of action.
Meanwhile, this is all playing out in the public schools. In 1965, Congress passed the Bilingual Education Act. Um, the original BEA was aimed at improving the poor school performance of limited English proficient children from low-income families. And it was doing this by providing funds for programs that could help these children learn English before they were being placed in regular classrooms. So getting rid of the sink or swim approach that was being used in the schools. Now, these programs could be transitional bilingual education. In other words, using the student's native language as a way to help them um, develop literacy skills that would then transition into English. Or they could be English as a second language instruction, which is basically um, sheltered immersion in a separate classroom until the children have enough English to actually learn effectively in a mainstream classroom. Most people don't understand that the BEA was about more than bilingual education and that bilingual education um, in this context was a transitional program not designed to enhance or maintain fluency in the native language. Uh, one problem with the 1965 BEA, even though it was a very well-intentioned move, is that it perpetuated an approach that associated bilingualism with disadvantage, cultural, cultural deprivation, and alienation by basically saying, well, the reason these kids are having a problem in school is because they're bilingual. Um, during the 1980s, uh, we saw a real disconnect between common perceptions of bilingual education and what was actually going on in professional practice. The public discourse about bilingual education shifted towards multiculturalism and preserving native languages, so some people saw that as a threat to national unity. I'm going to read you a quote from linguists Catherine Snow and Kenji Hakuda. Uh, designed to kind of uh, bring people back to what was really going on. Bilingual education, in its present form, may be one of the greatest misnomers of educational programs. What it fosters is monolingualism. Bilingual classrooms are efficient revolving doors between home language monolingualism and English monolingualism. Were it not for the name, the champion of logistic homogeneity on American soil could not have found a better friend than transitional bilingual education. What's interesting is during the late 80s, at the same time when bilingual education was coming under attack, the government started linking languages and proficiencies in different languages with national security. So on one hand, we're trying to kill immigrant languages, and on the other hand, we're trying to promote them. The BEA underwent several revisions. The most recent was in 1994. And this law placed a very high value on academic achievement, saying that given access to the same challenging curriculum, language minority students can achieve at the same rate and the same high standards as other students. It also placed some emphasis on actual bilingualism. So um, targeting programs that would maintain the native language rather than use it as the revolving door. 
Um, this is the case because um, research shows that proficient bilingualism is a desirable education goal in that it can bring cognitive, academic, cultural, and economic <coughs> benefits. Um, and um, this, so being that this language had changed quite a bit, the language of the act between 1965 and 1994, educators thought this could really mean big changes in how langu language minority students and language majority students were being educated. But Congress cut the funding by nearly 40 percent. What that resulted in was deep cuts for instructional programs, teacher training, research, evaluation, and support services. Um, there was an anti-bilingual education climate. The Bilingual Education Act was attacked in the press. And this is the case even though very little bilingual education was truly bilingual. We also know from education research that implemented correctly, bilingual education is just as effective as English as a second language education in helping children become proficient in English. Um, of course, this was not al always the case, usually due to lack of resources or qualified teachers. And also, some school districts unwittingly gave incentives for keeping children in bilingual classes for many years because that way their standardized test store scores wouldn't contribute to school averages. In some troubled districts, bilingual programs did become ghettos for minority students. So if you looked hard enough for a bad bilingual program, you could find one. And one person who looked was named Ron Eltz, still is named that. He's a physicist and a Silicon Valley software millionaire who started the campaign English for the Children. Um, results of his work, well, uh, California Proposition 227 was placed in 19, passed in 1998, Arizona Proposition 203 in 1999, and most recently Massachusetts Question 2 in 2002. In that year, a similar initiative failed dramatically in Colorado. Um, I'm going to focus on the oldest law, California's, because Arizona um, was never fully implemented, and we actually have the best results data on California. So what did this law say? First of all, that all public school instruction will be conducted in English, but parents or guardians could waive that if they could show that their child already knows English, has special needs, or would learn English faster through an alternative instructional technique. Children not fluent in English will receive intensive sheltered English immersion for a short time, not normally exceeding one year. The state will appropriate $50 million a year for 10 years to fund programs that provide children with English tutoring. And parents or guardians could file enforcement suits. You can imagine what havoc that created in the bilingual education world. Behind Proposition 227, well, 61% of California voters in almost all regions of the state did vote for it. 
Uh, it was more Republican than Democrat, but this issue was not central to either campaign. So the best poll data we have show that the proposition's passage was um, motivated by two beliefs that were central to voters' support. One is the belief that bilingual education was ineffective, and the other was the belief that Americans should speak English. In terms of how schools responded to this, how school districts and educators responded, um, education researchers Tom Stridicus and Eugene Garcia and a team of others conducted um, a longitudinal study in Central California schools. And they define responses roughly in three categories. The first one is outward defiance. A good example of this would be the San Francisco Bay Area, where um, immediately principals and teachers mobilized to educate parents about their options under the law and to encourage them to sign waivers to allow them to continue to be in the programs that they were already in. Another example, um, Stradicus and Garcia call clarification. And that's basically educators um, taking this as an opportunity to think about what they were doing, what their mission was towards, uh, in terms of serving English learners. And the results of this clarification dialogue could go either way, um, more in the uh, way of San Francisco or more towards a shift away from bilingual classrooms towards um, English immersion classrooms. The third and definitely most detrimental response in terms of how children and parents were affected was uh, anxiety in the face of climate change. Here you had no clarity, no unity necessarily between principals and their districts or between teachers and or between teachers and their principals, lots of chaos, parents not informed, educators demoralized, and um, some very devastating outcomes. Overall, did it um, improve student outcomes? You might expect that it wouldn't in that last case, but there have been some studies that looked at the entire state. Uh, Stradicus was one. He concluded that 227 was not the answer to school and district concerns about English language learners. A recently released five-year study of Proposition 227's impact on the English proficiency and academic performance of limited English proficient, proficient children throughout California uh, was conducted by American Institute for Research and WestEd, concluded that Proposition 227 focused on the wrong issue. It does not appear to be the model of instruction employed or at least not the name given to it, but rather other factors that are much more operative in distinguishing between failure and success with English learners. So what are those other factors? The study identifies a whole list. Staff capacity and ongoing training, a shared vision for limited English proficient students, curriculum and instruction targeted towards limited English proficient students' progress, systematic assessment, school and classroom organization around supporting these children and their progress, district support for the instruction of limited English or English learner students, 
community outreach to increase the parents' involvement in their children's education. And finally, resources and technology to support that instruction. So meanwhile, while people were arguing about bilingual education, a counter trend was emerging. Dual language education is also called two-way immersion or dual immersion. This graph shows the growth of dual language programs in the United States. It's still a small movement. There's only 329 programs in the whole country, but a third of these are in the state of California. And we note that these programs grew the fastest when bilingual education was most challenged. So what is a dual language program? First of all, you're going to find classrooms that mix English and non-English speaking students in the same. 50-50, usually Spanish is the non-English language, although we do have some programs that uh, are French, Navajo, Korean, Cantonese, and Mandarin. Um, a dual language program has to start early, at least by the first grade, and extend at least through the fifth grade. Eighth grade is ideal. And these are enrichment programs, not remedial programs. They emphasize academic excellence, bilingualism, biliteracy, and multicultural understanding for all students. I first became interested in dual language programs because this is a place where the children of immigrants and the languages that they bring to school are valued rather than viewed as a problem that needs to be dealt with by the education system. In talking to educators and parents about their decisions to implement these programs or to put their children in them, themes that come up over and over again are, first of all, they work for English language learners and for Spanish language or others, um, learners. Parents feel that it's important for their kids to learn Spanish or to maintain it. That could be for cultural reasons or for perceived economic reasons. Uh, many parents, and of course educators, have read the literature on the cognitive benefits of bilingualism. And um, it's also not uncommon for parents to say that they really value having their children educated in a multicultural environment. I'm going to show you seven pictures of dual language classrooms in Southern California and Chicago. This is in Long Beach. I think a fifth grade classroom. Education researchers and practitioners are paying attention to dual language education for several practical reasons. First of all, it is an effective way for English learners to be proficient in English while pursuing an enriched curriculum rather than being in sort of a remedial setting until their English was good enough. Second, it holds great promise as a strategy for closing the achievement gap between low and high socioeconomic status students in general and between Latino and white students in particular. And um, it's also notable that the biggest trend in Massachusetts schools as they respond to their 
anti-bilingual education law has been to switch over to dual language programs, which in that state are exempted from the law. Um, there's some, um, there has been some switching in California, too, although most, at most schools, the Spanish-speaking parents still have to sign a waiver to allow their child to be in the program. Um, here's a first-grade classroom in Chicago. I should also mention that um, social scientists who take a more theoretical interest in dual language in, uh, education um, see these programs as institutionalizing the idea that newcomers to the United States are continually remaking the mainstream and that immigrant acculturation is a two-way process. These also provide institutional backing for what scholars call selective acculturation, which is when ethnic networks and strong communities support children of immigrants as they learn to deal with life in the U.S., with an outcome of upwardly, upwardly mobile incorporation into U.S. society combined with bilingualism and biculturalism. It also appears that this form of schooling is nurturing or creating transnational or global identities um, in the students that go through them. Now, dual language programs were never targeted by Proposition 227. But as you can imagine, um, at first there was some effect here in California. Some programs um, did fall apart. But in the long run, I found that 227 was a setback, not a major, but not a major setback. And that what's happened in the last few years is that because in California there is extra scrutiny for any program that's bilingual, and tougher standards in general because of No Child Left Behind, the newer programs are actually better planned, better funded, and more carefully implemented than the older programs. Now, that said, I don't want to make it sound like I think 227 was a good thing. In the short term, it created a lot of havoc, and that extended to dual language educators. Um, they had reactions similar to the ones that Stridicus and Garcia mentioned. But in the longer term, it really hasn't had much effect. Now I'd like to look at the bigger picture. Does immigration matter in the current debate? Does language matter in the current debate? Um, what I mean by language is language policy and politics, not the language of the legislation. Um, you probably all know that the 109th Congress ended up doing nothing on immigration. But it's unlikely that this debate is going to die down. It's already provoked immigrants' rights rallies in Los Angeles, D.C., New York, San Diego, and many other cities. Let's see. I, have to, I think I have to do this. Um, and these rallies are displays of protest as well as displays of patriotism. They're promoting political mobilization among naturalized immigrants and their children. We don't yet know the extent to which these uh, newly mobilized Latinos are actually going to vote, but those who do are very likely to vote in the interests of immigrants, whether they themselves are immigrants or not. Concurrent with the rallies in May 2006, 
a group of Latino musicians, including two popular Puerto Rican reggaeton stars, created this version of the national anthem. you probably know, it seems like just about everybody has something to say about this. It's probably, though, not a coincidence that two and a half weeks after Nuestro Inno hit the airwaves, the Senate voted in favor of James Inhofe's addition to their immigration bill, namely to make English the national language of the United States. Well, what does that mean, English as the national language? It's about like saying the bald eagle is our national symbol. So if that's the case, why, why should we even care about a little bit of posturing? Well, that wasn't the only uh, language legislation that was introduced. <coughs> House Resolution, Resolution 4408 and Senate Bill 3828, which are identical, say that all businesses of the U.S. government, including publications, will be conducted in English, and no person has the right, entitlement, or claim to have the government of the United States or any of its officials or representatives act, communicate, perform, or provide services, or provide materials in any language <coughs> other than English. If passed, this law would repeal Section 203 of the Voting Rights Act, which established citizens' right to ballots in non-English languages. Um, these proposals were put forth, again, by Senator Inhofe, and in the House, um, Steve King. Uh, Inhofe is from Oklahoma, and King is from Iowa. These are not exactly high immigration states. So. Specifically, why would these senators care so much about language? And more generally, are these congressmen? And why would Congress even spend time on language politics, given that there's no lack of more pressing issues to be dealt with? Well, this is pretty much two ways of asking the same question. Is English endangered? Is Spanish taking over the country? Or perhaps just as in other high immigration times in our history, um, does hearing other languages make English monolinguals feel uncomfortable? I'll consider these in turn. Some recent research has shown that today's children of Latino immigrants are retaining Spanish more than in the past and more than the children of other immigrant groups. 
Not to say they're not learning English. They are. But they're, they're not getting rid of their Spanish quite as quickly. But that doesn't really say much. Even in Southern California, most third-generation Mexicans are English monolinguals. To be more specific, 83% are if they have three or four foreign-born grandparents, and 93% if they only have one or two foreign-born grandparents. So even in a place where we have more than five million people of Mexican heritage and continuous immigration from Mexico and other Spanish-speaking countries, Spanish is tending to disappear by the third generation. Um, this study uses data from the Immigration and Intergenerational Mobility in Metropolitan Los Angeles Survey, or IMLA. Um, it's unique in that it does let us look at specific generations, specific immigrant generations. Um, Wayne and I obviously both like this study, because we both <coughs> used the, the uh, figures. What we're looking at here is the proportion of people who speak a non-English mother tongue well. Um, first generation are foreign-born individuals, who all do. 1.5 are foreign-born who immigrated to the U.S. before they were 15 years old. Uh, generation 2 is somebody U.S.-born with two foreign-born parents. And then we have 2.5 over here. This is a U.S.-born person with only one foreign-born parent. And then 3 and 3.5 um, are referring to the grandparents, three or four foreign-born grandparents or one and two foreign-born grandparents. Um, what this chart is depicting is the proportion of group members who speak their mother tongue very well, who self-report that they do. And we see, yeah, Spanish speakers a little higher than other groups, but everybody leveling off in the end. This one looks at who's speaking their mother tongue at home by generation. Language at home is a particularly good indica indicator of um, intergenerational transmission, what's going to happen with even the further generation. So we see, yeah, it's a little higher for some Spanish-speaking groups, again, but it's still very, very low. And I want to emphasize that these people who do manage to maintain or develop and retain Spanish proficiency are doing so as Spanish-English bilinguals, not as Spanish monolinguals. To equate bilingualism with disloyalty to the United States is a thoroughly provincial idea. It's really a regression towards 16th century ideals of nationhood that had to be transcended in order to establish modern states. So Spanish isn't taking over. Let's go on to the other possibility. This quote is from linguist Thomas Ricento um, discussing the official English movement of the 80s and 90s. He noted that many Americans, especially in large cities, felt that their way of life was under assault. The sounds of Spanish, Korean, Chinese, Arabic, and many other languages were heard with increasing frequency in American towns and cities. The American border of the Southwest was too porous. Projections of demographic patterns showed that older immigrant populations were being replaced, were not replacing themselves as quickly as were the newer non-European immigrants. So Ricento framed this backlash as a reaction to a different wave of new immigrants and changing de demographics. More recently, at a campaign appearance by Arnold Schwarzenegger, 
the vice president of an Orange County Republican club, said that although he supported Mr. Schwarzenegger, he wanted the government to take a harder line on immigration because he could not bear hearing more and more Spanish being spoken in the country and wondered about the legality of the newcomers because we are being overloaded with a potential hazard. So here we see a plausible connection between linguistic discomfort and the immigration debate. How that might play out? As far as the federal official English policy goes, the potential implications, as you saw, are far greater than those of simply declaring, declaring that English is the national mm -hmm. language. Um, unfortunately, it's unlikely that voters will differentiate between the two, and that could be a little bit scary. But again, if the state-level statutes are any indication of what a federal-level official language law would look like, um, it might not actually change much in practice. Meanwhile, I think that language politics could impact the immigration debate in terms of who should be allowed to immigrate, what is expected of immigrants, and how the children of immigrants are educated. I'd also like to suggest two ways that language should matter in the immigration debate. The federal government, um, since, it's, since we're seeing that um, there is a lot of uh, discomfort, um, Wayne mentioned um, a lot of attention put on the language use of first-generation immigrants uh, or first-generation immigrants not learning English fast enough, etc. Um, the federal government should spend generously on ESL programs and community-based resources for adult immigrants. In sociologist Irene Blomrad's study of why immigrants to Canada are much more likely to become citizens than their counterparts in the United States, she identifies key institutional differences between the two countries. Canadian policy provides symbolic support and instrumental aid, including uh, funds for teaching English or French, to ethnic organizations and ethnic community leaders. In the United States, this type of activity is the domain of state-level policy and civil society. So it's carried out in government offices, in community colleges, perhaps in churches. And the results, um, well, there's lower rate of naturalization in the United States and also different motives for naturalization. The Portuguese immigrants that Blomrad interviewed in Boston saw that um, they didn't have any particular reasons for their choice to naturalize or not to naturalize. It, it just didn't really seem important to them. But among their counterparts in Toronto, there was a clear narrative of naturalization as a gateway to participatory citizenship. So it could be that our assimilationist policies here in the US are actually hindering assimilation. Another way that language should matter is the U.S. should value and encourage the preservation and learning of immigrants' languages. Now, this suggestion derives from a less popularized idea that immigration can be a foreign policy tool. By far, the most common foreign languages taught in U.S. primary and secondary schools are Spanish and French. 
Very few schools offer Persian, Arabic, Chinese, Hindi, or other languages that our government deems crucial for national security. Of course, learning a language, as you know, is not just a matter of learning the words or memorizing things. Students have to master cultural context in which the speech occurs. So ideally, this implies an extended stay in a place where the target language predominates. But many residents of Africa, Europe, Latin America, and Asia who are not native English speakers learn fluent English without ever stepping on a plane. Why? Well, we can't ignore the international reach of English in all domains, including popular media. And there are obviously more potential reasons why, say, a native speaker of Urdu might want to learn English than vice versa. And those reasons don't really have a lot to do with the policies of the country she lives in. But if the US government truly values multiple linguistic competencies among its citizens, it needs a policy that would favor immigrants who can teach languages that are rare and increasingly valuable here. Just to illustrate the need, uh, a recent, recent National Geographic poll showed that among Americans aged 18 to 24, 63% could not locate Iraq on a map. 60% do not speak a foreign language with fluency. 20% think Sudan is in Asia. 48% believe that most people in India are Muslim. 47% think that it's important but not absolutely necessary to speak a foreign language. 38% say it's, it's really not too important. So it's a little embarrassing. But it brings home the point that immigration policy should help remedy geographic and cultural illiteracy and linguistic disadvantage, as well as buttressing national security and the US's position in the global economy should also promote an additive concept of immigrant incorporation. Well, by now, it should be clear that we all face opportunities and challenges that cannot all be met in English or understood via the lens of American culture. To preserve and expand America's linguistic and cultural capabilities, the US government would do well to design and implement policies that regard speakers of non-English languages as resources rather than threats, and that promote bilingualism for all Americans. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this and other UCTV programs, visit us online at www.uctv.tv.